I'd like for all of us to imagine this morning that we were in the country and there were two farms next to one another. There was a farm which a rich young, rich farmer who's got lots of sheep, lots of cattle, everything that a farm, a good farm needs. And next to it, there is another farmer who is very, very poor. And apart from his family, the most precious thing that he's got is a little lamb. It's a U. E W E. <laughs> the rich farmer all of a sudden gets a visitor. I meant to tell you that the poor farmer all he had was this poor little lamb. And this was the most precious thing. So it was for farming purposes, but also was for a pet as well. This rich farmer has got this visitor. And all of a sudden, he decides to do something very outrageous. He wanted to be very hospitable to this visitor. He wanted to show all he could that he was welcoming him very well. And then he decides to kill one of the lambs. But none of the lambs from him for his own farm. But he decides to take the lamb from this poor farmer and then treat the guests. Outrageous, isn't it? Unfair. Injustice. David's reaction was, this farmer needs to be hung because of the injustice he has done to the poor farmer. This was the parable that Nathan the prophet approached King David as he was dealing and he was confronting him with what he has done with Bathsheba. Now we know the story very well. If you want to be reminded, it's in 2 Samuel chapters 11 and 12. But here we've got David. It was spring. Chapter 11 starts very, very powerfully. It was a spring day. David's troops were at war. David had appointed this commander called Joab. Basically, they've won a lot of battles. But strangely enough, David decides to stay in Jerusalem when he, as a king, should have been in the battlefield. And then, walking on the roof of his palace, he looked down and saw a beautiful woman called Bathsheba. The Bible goes in details and describes and tells us who Bathsheba was. Gives us the profile. She was the, do- the wife of Uriah, which is again a very big, uh, you can read about him in um, 1 and 2 Kings, a uh, very powerful 
fighter for the army of David. David sees Bathsheba and he sends people to get her to come to the palace and then sleeps with her and then gets her pregnant. But it doesn't stop here. He needs to find a way to hide this. So he sends word for Uriah to come back from the battlefield. Come because David wants to see him. And with two attempts trying to make Uriah go home in order for them to think that he was going to sleep with his wife, he fails because Uriah was very loyal to his countrymen, but also he was loyal to God. So David sends him back to the troops with a sealed letter for the commander and says, you need to put this guy in the front line where the fighting is the heaviest. Then those around him would retreat so he would get killed. David's plan was successful. And then David takes Bathsheba as his wife. Until now, everything seems fine, apart from two or three people, or maybe some more than two or three, who are aware of what David has done. Until Nathan is told by God to go and confront the king. Here we've got a story which is not a story of success like the one that we spoke last Sunday. For those of you who are not here, we spoke about David and Goliath. And we connected it with Psalm 8 when it says, O Lord, O Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Today we've got David who is in a different place. I think it's a downward spiral, what he's doing. I've been really struggling with this passage because um, I don't want to be uh, saying things that are not from the passage. But one of the things that is very, very clear here is that actually, and what it says in the passage as well, what David did, 2 Samuel verse 27 of chapter 11 is what David did was displeasing unto the Lord. And here we've got a prophet who has got the guts to go and tell the king a parable that immediately it's going to lead him to pointing it out to David that it was him. We read in the scriptures that after Nathan had told this parable, David was outrageous about it. This is unfair. 
And then Nathan says, yes, it is unfair. But that rich farmer is you. Gulp. So, the first lesson from this story is to do with Nathan. If Nathan was to come and tell you a parable about your life today, what would that parable look like? As community of people of God, we need those Nathans. We need those Nathans for the only reason that these kind of guys do not compromise with who God is, what he has given us. And actually, they come to that point that they don't compromise to the point of death. Here we've got this courageous prophet who basically goes and confronts a very mighty king like David and tells them, tells him about what's going on straight to his face. The other thing that we're dealing here, the second lesson, is that we're dealing with sin. We're dealing with sin, which is a very foreign concept in our postmodernist world. Because sin as term comes across as being very judgmental and very exclusive. And I think the church has kind of misused the term by exclusivity, by saying that we are the good guys and those there are the bad guys. But what we learn here about sin is that what's actually Tim Keller tries to explain in one of his books, um, is that sin here has to do, or another definition to explain sin, has to do with idolatry. It's when you replace the place that belongs to God with something else. And that's what has happened in David's life. We only heard last Sunday... And I don't know how many years it was between David winning the battle with Goliath and Bathsheba. But David has been this guy who has been a man after God's own heart. And here we've got somebody who has replaced somehow the place that belongs to God with something else. Which in this case, it's uncontrollably spiral because it starts with lust and it ends up with killing and death. It starts off with a little thing, a little thought and it ends up with a catastrophe. But God loved David Because this David, this guy was a man after God's own heart. 
And he loved him to the point that he was going to not sweep this thing under the carpet, even though it was fine because the king was the ruler. He could do anything that he wanted. He could have killed Nathan. It was just a word spoken, and anything could happen. But here we've got somebody who really, for me, fulfills that word, a man after God's own heart. Because facing the prophets, he responds because he knows that he has committed not only idolatry, but responds because he has committed idolatry. And he responds because he knows that he has replaced that place of God. Oh God, my God, how majestic is your name in all the earth. He has replaced it with something else. Perhaps he has replaced it with something else that has come with his title, the King of Israel. Perhaps he has replaced it with something that that comes with his success. Perhaps he has replaced it with something else that has come with his power. But he gets confronted by God through the prophets. And that's why David is a, God, it's a man after God's own heart. Because he knows that down deep within him, despite of his success, he has let God down. And there is time to recover for this. And there is time to get his life back to its shape. And there we've got Psalm 51. I'm going to read it from the New Living Translation, just to make Jill happy. You're welcome. (laughs) Have mercy on me, O God, because of your unfailing love. Because of your great compassion, blot out the stain of my sins. Wash me clean from my guilt. Purify me from my sin, for I recognize my rebellion. It haunts me day and night. Against you, and you alone have I sinned. I have done what is evil in your sight. You will be proved right in what you say. And your judgment against me is just. For I I was born a sinner. Yes, from the moment my mother conceived me. But you desire honesty from the womb, teaching me wisdom even there. Purify me from my sins and I will be clean. Wash me and I'll be whiter than snow. Oh, give me back my joy again. You have broken me. Now let me rejoice. Don't keep looking at my sins. Remove the stain of my guilt. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a loyal spirit within me. Do not banish me from your presence. And do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. And make me willing 
to obey you. Then I'll teach your ways to rebels and they will return to you. Forgive me for shedding blood, O God who saves. And then I will joyfully sing of your forgiveness. Unseal my lips, O Lord, that my mouth may praise you. You do not desire a sacrifice, or I would, not off- I would offer one. You do not want a burnt offering. The sacrifice that you desire is a broken spirit. You will not reject the broken and repentant heart, O God. Look with favor on Zion and help her. Rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. Then you'll be pleased with sacrifices offered in the right spirit, with burnt offerings, with whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will again be sacrificed on your altar. A man after God's own heart who gets confronted of his own walk with God and comes to that place saying, oops, what the word says about my sins will find me out really is true. I have been found out not by anybody else but by God. And I have nowhere else to hide. And there is no reason why I should carry on doing my own thing. I know what I need to do. Come back and say, God, I've messed up. We're going to spend only a few minutes on the psalm because we're going to have communion afterwards. But have a look at the psalm. On the NIV, it's it's good enough as well. Um, It starts with a plea, doesn't it? The whole, the whole psalm, it's a plea in itself. It's a prayer, but it's 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 fragmented in stages. And I think the my favorite bit of it is is the the second part when when it starts. I think from verse. I'll join you with the NIV now. So, when it starts with with confession, against you only have I sinned and done evil, what is evil in your sight. Do you remember that story of the New Testament? Dave preached about it at uh, John Davis's funeral. Story of the compassionate father or the prodigal son. He comes to his senses and says, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. David comes to that place and says, only against you have I done this. And of course, because he has sinned against God, he has sinned against people. He has sinned against Bathsheba. He has sinned against Uriah. He has sinned against his his own family. And all those things. But here we've got a man who comes to that place and says, actually... This is my time to confess 
Surely you desire truth in the inner parts. You teach me wisdom in the inmost place. Whoa. A mighty king becoming this small before the almighty God. And then he knows what he needs to do. After he has confessed what he has done, he says, God, because only you can clean my sin, I want to be clean. I don't want anything to be blotted against my character. I've messed around, but only you can clean me. And actually, if David was able to say that to God, I just want to draw a parallel to what we are just about to celebrate now. And saying, well, because of what Jesus has done for us, because of his death and resurrection, we can say much more than David was able to say, Father God, clean me. Father God, purify me from my sins. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a loyal spirit within me. Do not banish me from your presence. And do not take the Holy Spirit from me. Because David knew what it meant for the Holy Spirit to be taken from him. He saw it in the life of Saul. He didn't want that to happen. Perhaps this psalm helps us to reflect a little bit. Or too much. Because sin is idolatry. And I want to ask the question today to you and to myself. What is that place in your heart that is greater than God's? And if that's the case, we've got a very, very clear direction of what to do with that. I think it's no point sweeping it under the carpet. Because the word says, your sins will find you out. As scary as it is. And perhaps we need those Nathans. Perhaps let's not get comfortable just with the idea that we need the Nathans, but let's get more open to the idea that when that Nathan comes, we've got the same reaction as David had. That this is from God, and I better do something, because I don't want to do anything that is displeasing under him. Going back to this prophetic voice, who are the prophets in our midst? Extended it a little bit more. How is our church being a prophetic voice to the community, 
to this city, in our place of work? These are all questions that we need to ask and contemplate in our prayers with God. Because if God has called us to be a Nathan to this community, and we're not doing this, actually, out there, they're missing out. Now, I've asked the question this week as well, what would have happened if Nathan would have not had the courage to go and confront David? And I thought, well, if he was a man after God's own heart, God would have found other ways to confront him. But my question is, what if we, as God's community, are not up to speed with being a Nathan for whatever God has entrusted us? I want to ask that question, and I want to ask that question because I want for us to pray for that and take it very seriously. Because this is what God has entrusted us with. He has entrusted us with the gospel, which is the gospel, the good news of Jesus. He has entrusted us with a commandment to go and make disciples of all nations. He has entrusted us to go and preach the good news of Jesus. And that good news of Jesus is the best thing this world needs and we can offer it. Because it fits very well with the story of David. I think his actions had very clear consequences. Do you know, or you remember what was David's biggest, longest desire? Was to to build God's temple. Until the point that he committed this. And he didn't build it. We are entrusted as disciples of Jesus to build the kingdom of God. And we're not going to be able to do it unless we make the decision to live lives that are set apart for him. Because the main story that we learn from this whole story of David and Bathsheba is that actually following God in faith is about perseverance. Not giving it up. Not diminishing the power of God unto salvation which is the good news of Jesus Christ. So I just want to close before We take the communion together. And I want to read Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24. And I want to use that as a springboard for us to share the Lord's Supper together. Search me, O God, 
and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Being part of your people, O oh God, being part of your family, is part of your awesomeness. You are an awesome God. Because you've got the time, and because you've got the energy, and you've got the love, Lord, to deal with people like us. Lord, this has been our prayer this morning, to search us and show us. And Lord, with all our hearts, we want to join David's prayer to purify and create in us a clean heart. And thank you, Jesus, for making it much easier for us than David. Thank you, Lord, that we don't have to light a fire now and kill animals because we cannot get enough of being forgiven from you. Thank you, Jesus, that your death on the cross was sufficient for each and every one of us. Despite the size of our sin. Thank you, Father God, that you came to seek and to save that sheep that was lost. And that was me. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for that picture of you becoming sin for us. And thank you, Jesus, that you defeated death. You defeated sin, Lord, by being resurrected on the third day. So we come, Lord, and I want to join again and back up Jonty's prayer in the beginning of the service and say, forgive us, Lord, Forgive us for those times that we don't know what we're doing. And also forgive us for those times when we know that what we're doing is wrong and is displeasing unto you, but we do it anyway. Rescue us from ourselves, rescue us from our idols, and create a new spirit within us, Lord, by the power of your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.